As I told you, this is a great day. Dr. Larry Moyer is with us. Uh, he's a graduate of Philadelphia Bible College and Dallas Theological and uh, also Gordon-Conwell Seminary. But even more than that, for 46 years, he's been the founder and president of Evantel in Dallas, Texas. And he is a consistent, faithful witness and a great instructor on how to share your faith. And you're going to be blessed today and better instructed and equipped to get the good news of Christ out into the world. You all welcome Larry Moyer with a Beach Haven welcome, would you? Good. Come on, brother. <laughs> no good. Oh, good morning. It's an honor and a delight to be here with all of you. As I told the leaders last night, although I now live in Dallas, Texas, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I love the outdoors. I've always loved the countryside of Georgia, and it's such a delight to be here with you. I sincerely appreciate the awfully kind and to the point introduction the pastor gave me. When you travel as a speaker, you get every inflection under the sun, but they're not always good news. Some time ago, I speak up in Michigan for a week-long conference, and the pastor got up on opening night. What he actually wanted to say to people was, no, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. We're looking forward to that. Then he'll be leaving us next Saturday. But he was a pastor who had a reputation for getting tongue-tied in the pulpit. And sure enough, he introduced me. What he said the packed house was, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. He's leaving us next Saturday, and we're looking forward to that. <laughs> so I sincerely appreciate kind introduction. But I told the folks last night, I'm very transparent wherever I go, there is no speaker in the United States of America who steps on a platform any more grateful to God than I do. Because I don't have the time to give my life story. But I was born with an inherited speech defect, inherited from my dad's side of the family, that was so severe, I could not pronounce the word T-H-E, the. Speech therapists call it an articulation disorder where the tongue has no idea where to go for certain sounds. And for that reason, medical doctors told me to give up all hope of ever being a public speaker. One day, seeing high school with my head between my hands so no one could see I was crying because I had just been ridiculed what seemed like the 550th time I told God, if you will help me with this inherited defect that I have no control over, I will always use my voice for you. And starting that week, I started having control I'd never had in my entire life. And that was the year speech therapy brought me where I am today. But when you come from that kind of background, you don't take one opportunity for granted. It does not matter to the audience of 400 or an audience of 40,000. Because if it were not for what the grace of God has done in my life, there is no way I could be in this platform this morning. And it's such an honor and delight to have this time with you. But this morning, I want to ask and answer the question, what kind of Christian do you have to be in order to lead someone to Jesus Christ? What kind of Christian do you have to be in order to lead someone to Jesus Christ? And I would like to speak while I'm convinced in one of the most exciting paragraphs in the entire Bible on evangelism. So if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take it. And turn with me to the second part of the Bible, a part called the New Testament, that book called 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like to start reading at the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like to start reading at verse 1. Now, I want you to leave here today not just knowing what I said, but knowing where in the Bible God said it first. So you don't have a Bible in front of you. Look, when someone's near to you, follow me on the screen, 
or pull the handout out of your bulletins that has my outline on it, and you can follow me there as I read and speak this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like to start reading at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and beginning at the first verse. And I, brethren, I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Every single one of us have had those times. We have daydreamed about something we'd really like to do. It may have to do with our vacation or may have to do with our vocation. It may concern our living or may concern our livelihood. It may concern a hobby like building an airplane from start to finish. Or it may concern a house like building a home from floor to ceiling. But every single one of us has had those times. We have daydreamed about something we'd really like to do. But then we've said, I don't know enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not old enough. Then all of a sudden we have the opportunity and we find out it's not nearly as difficult as we have always made it. For example, from the time I was knee high to a grasshopper, the one thing I always wanted to do was go horseback riding. Now I suppose one reason is those who know me well know I am one avid outdoorsman. And as they know, you know, they always recommend you ride horseback outdoors instead of indoors. And then one day, some time ago, I had the opportunity because some teenagers with whom I was familiar were going horseback riding and invited me to join them. And although I was scared to no end, I could not turn down the invitation. All I said was a simple prayer. Here I sit upon a horse, about to take a certain course. If I should die before I'm through, this, one less ride I'll have to do. <laughs> and so that evening, I showed up at the barn where the horses were corralled, the girl who owned the horse I was riding suggested I mount from the side instead of the back. In a few moments, we were off. I mean, I remember, though it was yesterday, I was sitting so high in the saddle as to think, look out, Hollywood, here I come. No sooner was I enjoying my moment of fantasy when she reduced me to a moment of fact because she said, oh, by the way, Larry, that horse got a disgusting habit. I said, what's that? She said, sometimes... When it sees a car coming, it will step over the path of the car, thereby forcing it to stop. Then it will turn around and back up its rear end till it hits the bumper of the car and sit down on the hood of that car. And I said, now just hold everything. I don't hope you think I am so dumb as to believe that. No sooner did I think that, and before Almighty God, I'm not lying or exaggerating. This car approached in the distance. As soon as that dumb, stupid ignoramus, excuse for a horse, saw the car. He turned his southern hemisphere towards the car, backed up to a fellow's hind legs, hit the bumper, and sat down on the hood of that car. I have never been so embarrassed in all my life because there I sat looking like a spaceship already for takeoff. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, had I known then what I know now about horseback riding, I could have kept that from happening. One thing I had done is shot the horse. <laughs> but that day, I learned the fundamental principle in horseback riding. B 
Because the girls that own the horse said to me, Larry, there's one thing to remember when every go horseback riding, you always control the horse. You never let the horse control you. And since then, I've had no trouble horseback riding because our first thing I do is walk around the head of that horse, look at eyeball to eyeball and say to it, so help me, if you sit down on the hood of a car, I'm going to bust your bumper. <laughs> and all of us have time. We daydream about something we like to do. Then we say, I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't know enough. And then we have the opportunity to find out it's not nearly as difficult as we have always made it. Well, the thing I find so interesting is studies have proven that 5% of all Christians ever lead some to Christ, 95% don't. But the reason they don't is not they don't want to. I found they daydream about what it would be like to lead someone to Christ. Some time ago, I had breakfast with a sportscaster. I was privileged to lead to Christ. He said, Larry, if I could lead one person to Christ in my life, I would be so excited. But they'd say, I just don't know enough. I'm just not brave enough. I'm not persuasive enough. Well, quite frankly, this paragraph contains the answer that you may have been looking for for 50 years. Because if you understand what it was about Paul, God used to evangelize Corinth, then you know what God uses and needs in you to evangelize Georgia. And the thing that's interesting is, what you think you need, you don't. What you don't think you need, you do. But this paragraph that takes the nervousness out of evangelism. And let's face it, that's our problem. We are so nervous. Like the man who called the hospital, he said, please, 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 get, please, please get, get ready, get ready. My wife, she's having a baby. My wife, she's having a baby. Please get ready. My wife, she's having a baby. I'm bringing her in. Please get ready. My wife, she's having a baby. Please get ready. My wife, she's having a baby. Please bring her in. And the nurse said, calm down. <laughs> Let's ask you a few questions. Is this her first child? He said, no, this is her husband. <laughs> <laughs> but we are so nervous. And it's this paragraph that takes the nervousness out of evangelism. Because if you know what was about Paul, God used to evangelize Corinth, then you know what God, you know what God needs in you to evangelize anybody, anywhere. Now, the first thing he says you need, take care of all those of us who say, I just don't know enough. Because our first thing he says you need is a simple message. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I turn not to anything among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That phrase, excellence of speech or wisdom, means a superiority of speech or wisdom. What he is saying is, my message was not characterized by fancy words or philosophic depth. Now, please bear in mind, that was not because Paul's intelligence was limited. There are some people who feel Christians are not that intelligent. Josh McDowell one time said before he came to Christ, he always figured Christians had two brains. The one was lost, and the other one was out looking for it. <laughs> and there are some people who feel Christians are just about as intelligent as a man who came to work one morning, and he had two bright red ears. And someone said, what in the world happened to you? He said, I did the dumbest thing. As I was getting ready this morning, I was ironing my shirt, and the phone rang. And I picked up the iron instead of the phone. And they said, oh, no, but what happened to the other ear? He said, the same guy called back. <laughs> and there are some people who feel Christians are just about that intelligent. 
But that was not Paul the Apostle. you got to remember, he grew up in Tarsus. That city noted for its intellectuality. He mastered Greek language. He had a knowledge of Roman law and custom, second to none. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the most distinguished teachers of his day. Had he been on a panel, he could have debated the best. Had he been on a TV game show, he could have answered the $1 million question. And had he been confronted with the atheist, he could have laid out the proof of the existence of God. The reason he did not demonstrate a superiority of speech or wisdom was not because his vocabulary was limited. It was because he limited his vocabulary. It was not because it was a person from words did not come easily. It was because he chose easy words. It was not because he could not, but because he would not. Because having told you what his message was not, he then tells you what it was. Look at verse 2. For I determined, that means I made up my mind. This was not a decision he made one mile in the city. This is a decision he made one mile from the city. I made up my mind not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The term Jesus Christ refers to his person. Him crucified refers to the work. So when you heard Paul, the first thing he told you was not the proof of his deity. It was a proclamation of his death. From the first time he said, preach Christ and crucified. From the second time he preached Christ and crucified. From the third time he preached Christ and crucified. So you never left his presence saying, what a brilliant speaker. You always left his presence saying, what a beautiful Savior. And the first thing he said you need is a simple message. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're now prepared to speak to anyone, anywhere. Because God was a person with a simple message. As I've been saying for 46 years, the Bible is 66 books. The gospel is 10 words. Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're now prepared to speak to anyone, anywhere. Because God was a person with a simple message. Again, the Bible is six, six books. The gospel is ten words. Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel say? It? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're now prepared to speak to anyone, anywhere, because God was a person with a simple message. And so many times we think that in order to evangelize, you have to be able to answer any question a non-Christian asks, explain any verse they point in the Bible they point up, and refute any argument they have. And you know what we often do? We prepare answers that don't even fit the questions lost people of 2019 are asking. I love the story of the man from France that came to New York City. And he wanted to earn some extra money. The problem was he did not know any English. But he met the owner of a fruit market who was trying to get away for lunch, wanted somebody to watch his market who knew French and could talk to him in his language. He said, I will pay you to watch my fruit market while I go to lunch. And the Frenchman said, but I don't know any English. And the owner of the market said that would not be a problem because there's only three questions people ask you. 
The first thing to ask is, how much are they? Just say 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. They told them how to say 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Second thing they might say is, are they any good? I think honesty is the best policy. So just say sometimes yes and sometimes no. He told them how to say sometimes yes, sometimes no. So the third thing they might say is, I don't think I'll buy any. I don't want my market to be known for high pressure. So just say, if you don't, somebody else will. He told them how to say, if you don't, somebody else will. He said, that's all you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for a dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. And with that, he left the market, left the freshman in charge. A few months later, a policeman walked in and did not realize he did not know any English. And he said to the freshman, could you tell me what time it is? And the freshman said, 25 cents a piece or five for a dollar. Policeman said, are you trying to get smart with me? Freshman said, sometimes yes and sometimes no. <laughs> Policeman said, I feel like taking you right off to jail. Freshman said, if you don't, somebody else will. <laughs> and all we do is prepare answers. Don't fit the question lost people they are asking. What the Bible is saying is you need a simple message. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're not prepared to speak to anybody anywhere. Because Paul did not enter Corinth as a philosopher, as a debater. He entered it as a proclaimer. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, you're prepared to speak to anybody anywhere. Because the Bible is 66 books. The gospel is 10 words. What are those 10 words? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You know what I find interesting about that? Do you know who leads more to Christ than anybody else? Sure you do. It's our brand new what? Christian. You know what's interesting? They don't know anything. <laughs> All they know is Christ died for me. And they tell him and him and her, and they don't world to Christ with it. Dawson Trotman, who founded a ministry called the Navigators, one time said, soul winners are not soul winners because of what they know, but because of who they know and how much they want others to know him. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for your sin, rose from dead, congratulations, you're now prepared to speak to anyone, anywhere. As I tell people, God's greatest desire is not for a person who will defend the Bible. It's for a person who will declare to Christ of whom the Bible speaks. And God needs someone with a simple message. I love the story of the man fresh out of seminary who was intimidating in his first church. He said, Dad, I'm so afraid of the criticism I might encounter. And it was in a university town. He said, I'm just afraid of the criticism I'm going to encounter. If I mention something about Roman history, there's a man who's forgotten more than I ever know. If I mention something about Greek mythology, I'll feel inferior in the presence of a learned, congregation, learned person or congregation. And if I mention something about American history, there's a person or congregation who's forgotten more than I ever know. He said, Dad, what in the world do I do? And his godly father looks at him and says, Son, just tell them about Jesus.
they probably never heard about him. <laughs> what he's saying is, you need a simple message. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, you're not prepared to speak to anyone anywhere because that's the gospel. Again, the Bible is 66 books. The gospel's 10 words. State them again. What are they? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. But then he goes on and says, you need a second thing. This takes care of all those of us who say, I'm just not brave enough. And the second thing he says you need is an obedient, though fearful spirit. Look at what he said there in verse 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. See, the prophets of that day had the attitude, give me your questions, I'll answer all of them. Give me your arguments, I'll refute all of them. They kind of remind you of the three boys bragging about the intellectual abilities of their dads. One boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for one hour on any subject. Second boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for two hours on any subject. Third boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for three hours, not even have a subject. <laughs> That's what these philosophers are like. They can talk for three hours, not even have a subject. But look at Paul's demeanor in verse 3. I was with you in weakness. That word weakness refers to everything from his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, to his absence of strength due to his physical build. Most historians picture Paul as a man bony and bow-legged, the last person who ever won a weightlifting contest or made it on the cover of Fitness Magazine. They said, with you in trembling and weakness, in fear. That word fear refers to everything from the hostility of the Jews that made him unwanted, the environment of the community that made him unpopular. Sometimes he felt like going right through the front door saying everything. Sometimes he felt like walking through the back door saying nothing. Being a hunter, I love the story of the two hunters that went to Alaska on a grizzly bear hunt. All of a sudden, they came across footprints of what they were convinced was a man-eating grizzly. Right there, they froze. Then the one hunter, that's the other hunter, you go that way, see where he went, I'll go this way and see where he came from. <laughs> there must have been time Paul I felt like saying, you go over there and speak to him. I'll go back over here and pray for you. Then he said, weakness, fear, and in much trembling. That word trembling, trembling refers to the quivering on the outside of the body, the reflected nervousness on the inside. Had you been in front of him, you'd seen lips quivering. Had you been behind him, seen lips, legs shaking. Be an obedient, though fearful spirit. He knew there was a proclamation to be made, and God wanted him to make it. He knew there was a message to be given, and God wanted him to give it. He knew there was a story to be shared, and God wanted him to share it. Notice he did not say, I stayed at home in weakness, fear, and much trembling. He said, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And he had an obedient, though fearful spirit. And let's face it, one of the biggest problems we have in evangelism, including Larry Moyer, is a problem of fear. And sometimes that fear makes us panic. And we can do some of the craziest stuff. Part of my way through graduate school, I worked as a folder brush salesman. How many of you know what folder brush is? You have just told me how old you are. Door-to-door <laughs> -door selling of household goods. 
All you do, walk up to the house and say, good afternoon, I'm your four brush salesman. Then as a friendly gesture, you say, would you like a letter opener? Would you like a barbecue brush? Then go on and tell about the other items you had for sale. Well, there was a classmate of mine who also was a fuller brush salesman. And this guy was a gentleman with a capital G. He would not even open an oyster without knocking on the shell first. <laughs> and so he walked up to his house, house and he said, good afternoon. I'm your fuller brush salesman. And this woman looked at him and said, oh, go away. I'm so fed up with life, I'm thinking about committing suicide. And although he knew she was just making an exclamatory remark, she was not serious, he was so shocked, he did not know what to say. So he panicked, and he looked at her and he said, well, would you like a letter opener? <laughs> and sometimes we so panic, we say some of the craziest stuff. And wherever I go in evangelism, people would say to me, how do you avoid being afraid? And my answer is, this side of heaven, you never will. There will always be time when you're afraid. But you need an obedient, though fearful spirit. And if you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. And you need an obedient, though fearful spirit. Louise Plough, who's called the Billy Graham of South America, one time made the comment, when it comes to witnessing to your neighbor, even an evangelist has problems. Leighton Ford, who worked with the Billy Graham Association, one time said, I have preached to crowds of 60,000 people, and yet I still get nervous talking to somebody about Jesus. And if you ask Larry Moyer, when was the last time you were afraid, I'll tell you about the guy I witnessed to this week. And in obedient, though fearful spirit, and if you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. And if people evangelize, don't do it without fear. They do it in spite of fear. And in obedient, though fearful spirit. Back during the Civil War, General Lee one time wrote to Stonewall Jackson and said, Now the next time you ride a direction of headquarters, I wish to see you on what he called a matter of no great importance. As soon as Stonewall Jackson got the word, the following morning, he saddled his horse, and against a storm of wind and snow, he rode nine miles to General Lee's headquarters. When he got there, Lee was surprised to see him. He said, my note said, I wish to see you on a matter of no great importance. And Stonewall Jackson said, that's just the point. You said you wished to see me. And your smallest wish is my supreme command. God needs those who say, your smallest wish is my supreme command. And if you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. You need obedient, though fearful spirit. So the first thing he said you need is a simple message. If you know Christ died for my sins and rose from dead, you're not prepared to speak to anyone anywhere because that's the message. Then you need to have an obedient, though fearful spirit. If you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. But then there's a third thing you need. This takes care of all those of us who say, I'm just not persuasive enough. Because the third thing you need is the right perspective. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, in the power of God. You see, Paul remembered what you and I forget. People are not brought to Christ by the articulation of argument. They are not brought to Christ by a system of logic. They're not brought to Christ by the power of persuasion. They're brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, taking the truth of the gospel, right on their hearts, and cause them to come to God by faith. They're brought to Christ by what verse 4 calls the demonstration of the Spirit of power. That means the proving power of the Holy Spirit. They're brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. And therefore, all you need is the right perspective. Now, you know as much as I do, perspective is key to everything in life. For example, I am so amused as I travel our great country to find out how Americans feel about their birthdays. Because for the first 40 years, they couldn't enjoy them anymore. And then that 40th birthday hits, and it's, hello, coffin, here I come. <laughs> in fact, I found from ages 1 to 40, People enjoy their birthdays. From 40 to 60, they endure their birthdays. From 60 to 80, they abhor their birthdays. And after 80, they can't remember when the birthday is. <laughs> but when you stop and think about it, every birthday you have ought to be more exciting than one before. Because study after study has proven the more you have, the longer you live. <laughs> And therefore, all you need is a right perspective. That same perspective is key in evangelism. Arguments can be answered with arguments. Logic can be answered with logic. Debate can be answered with debate. But in order for conversion to take place, the Holy Spirit has to take the truth of the gospel, drive home their hearts, and cause them to come to God by faith. Paul did not want anyone saying, I came to Christ because Paul convinced me. He wanted everybody saying, I came to Christ because God convinced me. And I made it a practice to say to those who come to Christ in our outreaches, what did I say that convinced you of your need to come to Christ? It is so honoring to God how many times they said to me, all I can tell you, Larry, is God was speaking to me. One time we had a woman come to Christ in outreach. She was in Satan worship, on drugs, homosexuality, and adultery, those four. I said, what did I say to convince you of your need to come to Christ? She said, Larry, I did everything I could to avoid listening to you. I started by counting all the panels of wood that were behind you. Then I went to counting your teeth. <laughs> or memories, you said two things. I don't care what you've done, God loves you. And then you gave an illustration of one person dying for another. I knew God would speak to me. And she's a growing Christian today. And all you need is the right perspective. God is not saying, bring the lost to Christ. There is not one verse in the Bible that says that. God says, bring Christ to the lost. Because only he can bring the lost to Christ. Your job's presentation his job's persuasion. Your job's the conversing. His job's the converting. 
Your job's the sowing. His job's the saving. And all you need is the right perspective. And that's why I've never asked one person, and I never will, how many have you led to Christ? Because that's not your job. I have said, how many have you presented Christ to? And if you do the presenting, he'll do the persuading. Do the conversing, he'll do the converting. You do the sowing, he'll do the saving. You might be surprised to hear this from an evangelist. Five weeks, years ago, instead of emphasizing so much soul winning, we would emphasize more gospel sharing. Because your job is gospel sharing, his job is soul winning. Sometimes be the fourth of 15 people God's going to use. Sometimes be the fifth to tenth. Sometimes be the 16th of 32. Everybody gets excited. We're the 19th of 19. But God's saying, bring the Christ to lost. He's not saying, bring the lost to Christ. Because only he can do that. And people are brought to Christ by the proving power of the Holy Spirit. You bring Christ to them. God brings them to Christ. And all you need is the right perspective. And my point I'm making this morning is I found people daydream about be like, lead someone to Christ. Then they say, I just don't know enough. I'm just not brave enough. I'm not persuasive enough. He says you need three things. You need a simple message. The Bible is six, six books. The gospel is ten words. What are they again? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You need an obedient, though fearful spirit. If you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. And you have to have the right perspective. God's not saying bring the lost to Christ. He's saying bring Christ to the lost. And if you do the conversing, he'll do the converting. I can reduce everything I said to one sentence that I hope by God's grace you never forget the rest of your life. And that is, you don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broke person with a clear message. That's why the people God uses don't look like they just walked out of the bookstore. They look like they just walked out of their prayer closet. They're not hung up on their degree. They're hung up in their discipleship. They're not impressed with their talent. They're impressed with their teacher. They don't want you to know everything there is to know about them. They want you to know everything there is to know about him. Because you don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Can we say that together, all together? You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Say it again. You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Now, let's make it personal. Let's turn the you to an I and say it again. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Say it again. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Say it again. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. 
God give me two spiritual gifts. The one's evangelism, the other's repetition. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Again, I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. And therefore, you're broken and you're clear. God will use you to analyze anyone, anywhere. And if you'd like, he'd love to start today. One time with a housewife in the Midwest, true story, came to Christ. And she was so excited about what Christ had done for her. She wanted everyone to hear the good news. Christ died for you. Close to her, there was a university. And so she wrote to all the women in the girls', girls dormitory and said, I'd like to come talk to you about spiritual things. May I do that? Many said, no thanks. Many said, come on. But she encountered opposition from a place she never expected it when one of those girls turned out to be a believer and said to her, I don't think you ought to be doing what you're doing. You don't know the question. University students are asking. You don't know the issues. University students are facing. You could do more harm than good. And she said, the new convert said, I disagree. I could do more harm than good. I don't disagree. I'm not the best person. Would you see to it? Every girl in this dormitory hears the good news. Christ died for you. And the Christian said, no, I don't think I know how. And besides, I'm not willing. New convert said, that's what I find so disgusting. Because of people like you who are not willing to do it, God has to rely upon people like me. <laughs> know what's interesting? God's been relying upon people like you and me for years. And he's going to continue to do so. You know why? Sure you do. Say it with me. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Therefore, you're broken, you're clear. God will use you to evangelize anyone, anywhere. And again, he'd love to start today. All God's people ought to say, amen. Let's pray together. This morning, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, two things. First of all, if you don't know for sure, you're going to go to heaven. God wants you to hear a simple message.